Mark chapter 2, we're going to read from verse 1 all the way down to chapter 3 and verse 6 to get the full context of the story. Mark 2, beginning at verse 1. It says, When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And he went out again by the seashore and all the people were coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in the house, and his, and sorry, many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the patch pulls away from it the new from the old, and the worst tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost in the skins as well, but one puts new wine into fresh wineskins." And it happened as he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need, and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God the time of Abiath of the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around them with with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Let's give thanks again. Father in heaven, this morning we give you thanks for the word of God. Father, we thank you for these stories about the Lord Jesus Christ that are not just stories, they're true things that happen. And Father, we thank you for the great life that he has called us to come and live. And Father, we seek your blessing. Father, we pray that you would teach us your word this morning, that you'd open our hearts to understand what your spirit of God would say to us, that we might learn, and Father, we might be equipped, we might be strengthened and encouraged to carry on in this walk with you. And we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We've seen a couple of things in this whole chapter, and it's kind of a neat passage the way it all works together, because what you have is two bookend statements, one in chapter 2 and one at the end of chapter 2, and they are simply this, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, and at the end of the chapter he says, says so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And neatly arranged around those stories, a whole bunch of little those two statements is a bunch of stories that tell us and give us a calling about what it means to live the Christian life. And so in the first part, we see that we're to come and find forgiveness only through Jesus. In the story about Levi getting up and leaving his tax collector's booth to follow Jesus, we have the lesson, the calling from God to come and follow Jesus, leaving everything behind. And then we have the story of Jesus gathered around the table, and he's lying around the table, and they're eating and drinking with all those tax collectors and sinners and the disciples. And the message, the lesson there is this, come and fellowship with Jesus and his disciples. And this passage in front of us, the 23 to 28, and also the verse 6 of the next chapter, we have this simple lesson, come and rejoice, come and rest in Christ our Savior. Now, the story there includes a couple of things that need some explanation, need some background information. One of the things they tell you to do in Bible school is you always give the background behind the text so people can understand what the message is all about. And this particular section requires a little bit of explanation. So, with apologies, we're going to do a little bit of a history lesson. We're going to take a walk through the Bible, and we're going to unpack and explain two things that, without which you won't get the point of the passage, and it's simply this, Pharisees who they were, what they were all about. We have some idea from the Gospels, but there's lots of information about them that we simply don't know unless we look into the history of them. And also the Sabbath. The Sabbath is one of those thorny situations, those thorny topics in Scripture that a lot of people have questions about. How are we supposed to see Sabbath? How does it work? I've been asked twice in the last couple of weeks about Sabbath and the way Christians gather. So I want to go through and do kind of a biblical study from Genesis back to Mark on what the Sabbath is all about. So when we see what Jesus is doing, we can realize the message behind it. So first of all, our desire is to understand fully what Jesus meant when he made the second of the two massive statements in in Mark there. He made the one, Jesus is the Son of Man with authority to forgive sin. And the second statement that he made is also massive. It's, It's huge. If you were a first century Pharisee or first century man listening to Jesus say that, it was an incredible thing he said. Jesus is the Son of Man, Lord, even over the Sabbath. Our desire is to understand what the Sabbath means for us and what it is that Christ has called us into and how we should live in understanding the Sabbath. But first of all, the Pharisees. In order to understand the Pharisees properly, you have to understand the Jewish mindset at the end of the Old Testament. The Jews saw that the reason they had been disciplined by God by put into exile for seven years in Babylon and Assyria was because they had failed to keep the law of God the way that they were supposed to. If you remember, when we first started Casey, and there's a handful of you were here then, we worked our way through the book of Ezra, and we saw that how Ezra was a scribe. He was a priest of God. He was a scribe. He came over to the land, and he had set his heart. He devoted himself to learning, to studying, and to doing all the laws of God in Israel and to teach them to the Israelites. It's a great scene. If you're a preacher of any kind, you love some of these Old Testament scenes. There's a scene in the book of Ezra where near the end, or I think it's actually Nehemiah, sorry, near the end of the book, they get all the people together in this place called the Fish Gate, and they put the podium up there, and Ezra stands up like in a pulpit, kind of like this one, and he had about seven different Levite priests gathered around beside him, and all the people of the nation gather in this great big square, so there would have been thousands of them, maybe 40, even 50,000 people sitting in this great big square on the walls all around. And Ezra stands up, and the Bible says that when he opened the book of the law, all the people stood up, and they blessed the Lord. And Ezra read the book of the law, and he gave the sense of it. He was the first expositional preacher of Scripture. And that's why preachers love that phrase, that passage. What we don't often realize is what Ezra did there was actually set in motion the Pharisaic schools. 
Now, the Pharisees were not necessarily bad people. They had a lot of good intention. They saw that because of what they had done in disobeying the law, the best way to achieve God's blessing was to keep the law as best they possibly could. They hoped by keeping the law perfectly and and keeping it precisely that they would bring in, they would usher in the age of the Messiah. They kept the law of God in hopes that God would send the Messiah, that he would drive out the occupying forces that were now filling the land. So what you don't realize is from 586 B.C., all the way to when Jesus is in the, in the land, and even beyond that, it was constantly occupied by enemy forces. There was the Greeks, there was the well, Babylonians first, then the Assyrians and the Greeks, and then there was the Romans, and there was the, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, all these other guys. If you go and get a Bible, go and get an NRSV Bible with the Apocrypha, and don't be shocked, it's okay. You can read the Apocrypha, I promise you, you won't break out in plagues and spoils and, and all that kind of thing. The Apocrypha is not sacred writing, okay? So you just dismiss it, it's not scripture. But the Maccabees, in the middle of that section there, are great historical books and they explain a lot of what's going on. When you hit the New Testament, some of the attitudes and drives in the people in the New Testament, we don't understand very well because we miss the history between that. It's not sacred writing, but it is good history. The Maccabees were these guys who were so devoted to God that they literally were like freedom fighters. Uh, Judas Maccabeus literally means Judas the hammer. He was kind of like, dare I say it, the first WWF wrestler guy with a title like that. But he literally desired to set Israel free. And for a short period of time, I think it's about 40 years, between 586 B.C. and all the way through past biblical history, the New Testament, he set Israel free in this little rebellion. It was crushed. The Romans came in and they set up their order. So the Pharisees, their mindset is, listen, we got sent out of the land. We got disciplined by God because we failed to keep the law of God. So what we're going to do is we're going to keep the law perfectly. We're going to add provisions and add little laws to help us always obey the law to the nth detail and nth degree. And so they added 600 plus laws, little surplus laws to help them understand and keep the law perfectly. The Pharisees were also keen to extend the priestly regulations for purity. The priests had all those purification rules in Leviticus. The Pharisees want everybody to do that. Let's, let's make everybody do it. That we're all pure and it won't be a problem. They, uh, they formed themselves into voluntary organizations. They uh, stood above the peasants and the tradesmen. They're actually, surprisingly enough, they were actually quite a popular group. The Sadducees were the... Uh, theological liberals of their day. They didn't believe, like I told you last week, they didn't believe in resurrection and the angels and all that sort of thing. But the, the Pharisees were actually a fairly popular and fairly um, well-liked by the people. They never exerted any kind of governmental or religious control. Hence, when you read in 3 and verse 6, how the Pharisees went out and they conspired with the Herodians to destroy Jesus. They needed the help of the political people in order to get Jesus and destroy him. They strove. And they did really, they strove hard to be obedient to the word of God, but from a legalistic mindset and practice. They failed to depend on the Holy Spirit to understand fully the word of God. They understood that the scriptures were inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament prophets would say, the Spirit of God has anointed me to preach the gospel or to bring a message. So they fully understood that the writings, the Old Testament scriptures were inspired by God. They were written by God. They kept them as sacred, but they failed to depend on the Spirit of God to understand and apply those scriptures. And so they were constantly making mistakes. And we're going to see is right here in this, our story about the Sabbath and, and eating grain and so on, they had made a mistake again. The Pharisees called the people of God to obey the law of God, but under their interpretation of it. The Pharisees added just about the Sabbath rule. They added 39 categories of ways to understand how to keep the Sabbath. You think, it's one law. It occupies one line in the Decalogue, but they added 39 different categories of understanding. Okay, So the the Pharisees, the Pharisees were hypocrites, big time. What I want you to do is stick your finger in Mark 1, flip over about three or four pages backwards to Matthew 23, and... It's helpful because it shows really the problem. 
And this is Jesus, and he's pronouncing these woes and these, uh, these judgments against the Pharisees. We're not going to read it. I'm just going to work your way through it. I'll give you the verse reference so you can kind of see where we're at. I'm just going to highlight what these people were in, uh, from Jesus' perspective. So Matthew 23 The Pharisees, in verse 4, they added to the law and created unbearable burdens for the people of God. So putting all these different 600 laws on top of the original law, plus all these categories here, there, and everywhere, they created these burdens for the people of God that they couldn't carry. The Bible says in, in Matthew 23, 5, they were hypocrites. They did good deeds, but for self centered desire to be seen by others. In other words, everything they did was just so people could see how good they were. Mind you of anybody? Mm. In verses 6 through 12, they were hypocrites. They were status seekers. They were always looking to be, had the best place. They always wanted the the nice seat at the feast. They wanted to be returned or referred to by terms like rabbi and teacher, rabboni. It was like a, a respect. They wanted the people's respect. They were hypocrites shutting people out of the kingdom by their burdensome laws. In verse 14, they were, their prayers were hypocritical. It's kind of like the way Jesus describes it in Matthew 6, is they would walk along and they would stand on a street corner and they would gather people around them to hear them pray. And they would pray these great, long, flowery, wordy prayers. And people go, wow, they're so spiritual. Listen to them pray. Remind you of anybody? In verse 13, verse 15, sorry, they went to great lengths to gather all kinds of followers. But Jesus says, you know what? You gather followers to follow behind you, and then you turn them into sons of hell. In other words, all their hypocritical law-keeping failed to bring anyone to repentance of sin and faith in God. They were hypocrites swearing by the altar. They were hypocrites tithing the tiniest of spices. Who has a spice rack in your home? We got a spice rack. It's this little thingy with jars in it and all this great smelling powder junk in there. And Heather puts on the soups and the chilies and all the rest of it. And it's great. So what they were doing is taking their spice jar and going, okay, here's the spice. Let's take 10% of this and we'll tie that. And 10% of the cumin and tie that. 10% of the rosemary and the thyme and all the rest of that stuff. The chili powders. They tithe everything down to the tiniest detail. And Jesus said, listen, you should have done that. But you know what else? You've forgotten the weightier, the bigger issues, righteousness and mercy and justice. They were hypocrites because they were concerned only about the external things of the life. They cared nothing about their inner hearts. You ever here got your kids to wash the dishes one night, you know, and you, yep, you wash dishes, good on you, David. And you get done and you look down the dish rack and you see this nice cup there and it's all clean on the outside and, and he's done a great job. He's washed the outside so thoroughly and he's put it on the dish rack and then you flip the cup over and it was, ooh, there's you know, dried coffee in there and it's just gross, all right? Not that you would do that, David, I'm sure. But that's what they're like. Jesus said, listen, you're like a dish that's been all washed on the outside. It's like some of us, we come to church on Sunday morning and we've got all the right clothing on. We've scrubbed ourselves up. We look really nice. We look all clean. But in the inside, where it really counts, our hearts are filthy dirty. Jesus said, you're hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. Tombs have been all cleaned up and painted, but inside is rotting flesh and dead men's bones. And then verses 29 to 33, Jesus says, they're partners with those who murdered the prophets. And you wonder, how in the world could Jesus call them partners with those who murdered the prophets? And he could do it because of this. They were already plotting to destroy and to kill Jesus. They were partnering with those in the Old Testament who killed the prophets of God. They were going to do it again with Jesus, who is the greatest prophet of God of all. Listen. Whenever you have a drive to obey the word of God without the governing, guiding, illuminating influence of the spirit of God, you will have problems. You'll have legalism. You'll have hypocrisy. You'll have misunderstanding and misapplication. And that's exactly what's happening here in Mark 2. And as you've already figured out, the one question I'm forced to stop and ask us all as we think about the Pharisees is, is it possible that you are a Pharisee? You and I solve every spiritual problem with a rule or a law. That's what they were doing. 
That's the easiest way. You know, you've got a problem? Oh, we'll just create a rule. The rule is you've got to do this. The rule, and for every problem, every spiritual issue that comes up, for every solution to the text, you create a law and a rule to be obeyed. Do you practice? Do we practice our faith only when others can see it? You know what? How easy that is to do, isn't it? How easy it is to practice our faith, to, to go out and do some good deed for somebody, then come back and tell everybody about the thing that you've done so everybody will know how spiritual you are. I catch myself with the Facebook thing, you know, putting those nice quotes and comments on there that I put on there once in a while. Am I doing that to encourage people or just so people know how spiritual I am and how, what kind of books I'm reading and how deep thinking I really am? And people who know me well enough know he doesn't think that deeply at all, so don't worry about it. But how many of us literally practice our faith, literally exercise our spirituality just to be seen by other people? Are we so concerned about the externals that everybody see us in a favorable light? That we've almost gotten completely away from the inner heart before God. Remember the lesson from the story of the Pharisees. Jesus knew, sorry, the story of the paralytic. Jesus knew the thoughts of their heart. He understood. He read what they were thinking. He got right down to the core. I know what you're going on in your heart. And the reality is, we can come into a place like this, into a church, and we can clean ourselves up and scrub ourselves off and carry the right Bible and sing the hymns with tears in our eyes, but our hearts can be absolutely black and wicked on the inside. Can they not? We need to be so careful that we don't fall in the category of the Pharisee. But unlike the Pharisees, and in opposition to the Pharisees, Jesus came instead, and by God's grace, he called the people of God to repent of sin, to believe the gospel, to follow him. Jesus came and expounded and explained the Father to us. He came and we beheld, through Scripture, his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And unlike the Pharisees who were called to people to legalism, Jesus calls us to grace. He calls us to the un earned favor of God. Grace and legalism, Jesus and the Pharisees, they come crashing together again and again. That's why there's so much conflict between the two of them. Now, if you notice back in the story, verses 23 to 28, if you read through it quickly, you would pick up that there's seven times the, the text mentions the word Sabbath. So it's a very key theme in that story. You say, what is Sabbath all about? What does it mean? I literally got asked a couple questions. Um, a young lady who is now trying to go back and keep all the Old Testament laws about Sabbath and the old feasts and all of that. And I'm thinking, ah, oh, it's, it's a path that will lead you into all kinds of problems and difficulties. We need to understand fully what the Sabbath is and what it means in order to understand the story. So we're going to go back quickly to Genesis chapter 2. If you want to go turn your Bibles there, we'll read a little couple of verses there. Genesis 2, the first two verses. I'll give you a second to turn over in your Bible. Genesis 2, verses 1 and 2. You, you probably remember them. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Genesis 2, verse 1 and 2. It's a first mention of a Sabbath in quotation marks, rest, because the word really isn't rest at all. It's the word cease. He stopped working. In fact, John, Jesus in the book of John says that my father is working until now. You say, how can that possibly, if he stopped working in Genesis 2 and he's still working, how does that work itself out? The, first of all, you have to understand that God doesn't rest because he gets tired or he needs a break. You know, he created the entire universe in six days. He needed a rest. No, that's not what it means at all. I actually had someone tell me, you know, even God needed to rest. It's like, no, God did not need to rest. God never will need to rest. God is God. He's omnipotent. He's on. You know, when He created the heavens and the earth, do you know how much of a sweat He broke? None. He just spoke it into existence. I mean, it was the coolest thing of all. He didn't stop because he was resting. He stopped because he had finished and completed his creative work. 
Not all of his work was, was finished. He carried on sustaining all of creation. If God had stopped sustaining and keeping creation all working in perfect order, the Bible says that he sustains all of creation by the word of his power. What's that mean? That means he keeps everything happening exactly the way it's supposed to. I heard this, uh, these scientists guys got together and they figured out what would happen if we moved the earth 1% further away from the sun than it is now. You know what happens? It takes one day for the, for the earth to completely destroy. Because as the earth turns on its axis, everything goes away from the sun and the, the sun is gone down. When it's out of the sun's light, everything freezes. And it's just like minus 400 degrees or something crazy like that. And everything dies in 24 hours as the sun goes all the way around. And you finish and everything is dead. Grass, plants, trees, humans, animals, all gone. If you move the, sun, the earth 1% closer to the sun, what happens is the sun turns and the sun rises in the sky for everybody. It cooks everybody off. It burns everything completely. What's that show us? It shows that God is sustaining all of his creation. And so when God ceased from working on Genesis chapter 2 and verse 1, it doesn't mean that he stopped and rested completely. It meant the necessary work of creation was perfected and finished. But his sustaining work carried on. You say, so what? What has that got to do with this story? We'll get there. You'll see. Okay. Genesis 1 through 4 also talks about different types of work. Okay. There's a difference between work for production and work for sustaining life. For if your production work would be like tending and raising crops. If you're a stonemason, your work would be to build up stone structures. If you're the top of the pile of trades, if you're a carpenter, you know, you build houses, right? Your work is production work. It's not necessary work. If Dev and I stop working as carpenters, we don't stop existing. You know, we might run out of money sooner or later, but we don't stop existing. We don't, it's not necessary to sustain life. And the idea of Sabbath rest was the resting from work that was unnecessary to sustain life. You say again, what has that got to do with our text? We're getting there. Fast forward to the time of the Israelites and they're getting the law in Exodus 20 and they're told about the Sabbath rest. They're now being told they have to rest as part of the law. So you go ahead 1400 give or take years. In Exodus 20 in verse 8 it says this, uh, 28 to 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male, your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner, that's the traveler, who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in it, and then, uses the word again, rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 to 15 says this. They they kind of work together. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt as the Lord your God, sorry, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Put all that together. And what's the, what's the teaching of the Sabbath biblically for the Old Testament people of God is this. Sabbath was a reminder of God's ceasing from his creative work. It was a reminder. Okay, it's a good thing. It's a reminder of the relief that God granted them in bringing them out of slavery. Sabbath was a reminder of Israel's special covenant relationship with God. It was a day considered holy to the Lord. Sabbath was time consecrated, set apart to Yahweh in worship, teaching, and ministry. Sabbath was a command to rest and refresh. Okay, so that's what, that's what it's supposed to be. Fast forward again. Now you're back in the first century, you're back with the Pharisees. They've come back in the land. They've heard all about how they haven't kept the law of God, how they've been disobedient to the word of God, and they're going to strive now to be obedient to what God tells them to do in every precise detail of all the law. 
And so they sit down with the, the, the law and they work their way through it and they add all these little guideline laws. The problem with Sabbath, and it's a huge problem, is how do you interpret some of these loose statements? I don't mean loose and like bad. I mean loose, it's just they're not that well defined. So for example, work's prohibited, but what defined work? And so the Pharisees kind of scratched their heads and the scribes kind of rubbed their beards. They thought, what are we gonna, how are we going to define work? Because there's work and then there's work. And so I said, well, let's put all these little laws in place that keep everybody from working on the Sabbath. So, you know, if you're going to carry a burden, it has to be a certain size and weight, but no more, but no less. This is one example. You can't spit on the ground on the Sabbath. You say, how is that working? Well, when the spit hits the ground, it creates a little furrow in the dust, and that would be plowing. So plowing is now working, so you can't spit on the Sabbath. That might have been a facetious story told by someone to kind of get the point across. But that's the kind of degree they went to. The problem is, how do you define some of these terms? Burdens weren't to be carried. How do you define a burden? I carry my wallet in my back pocket. It's a burden. Not that much of a burden, but it's a burden, right? I, I, travel's restricted. You can't travel the Sabbath. Does that literally mean you have to lie horizontal on your bed, never rising up to walk around? Because if you're walking around your house, you're traveling, right? And they have all these problems. How are they going to resolve it? So they, they just keep adding more laws and more laws and more laws. So Sabbath prohibitions did not extend. Here's another problem. They didn't extend to life at risk. Jesus actually said, if you've got an animal and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not get a rope and pull it out? And they all went, yeah, of course we will. It's an animal. You've got to pull it out. But in, you carry the rope. That's carrying a burden. You tie it to the animal. You've, you've worked. You're pulling it out. That's labor. That's work. You've broken the Sabbath on a whole bunch of different areas. What about the temple servants and the temple priests? How do they keep Sabbath? They go to work on the Saturday morning, or the, the Sabbath morning, and they do all the work of the priest on all through the Sabbath. That The whole day is filled with working. If the breaking of the Sabbath was to be punished by death, what about them? You see all the problems that sort of came up. And so the, the priests, or the, sorry, the Pharisees just keep adding laws and rules and commandments. The practicality versus strict legal observance was a problem fit to twist a rabbi's eyes. What are we going to do with all this? And the problem was they kept adding things to the law. So what the Pharisees do? 39 categories of situations to resolve the Sabbath observance. Now, finally, we're back in our text. Matthew, or Mark, sorry, chapter 2, verse 23 to 28. And the way the story reads is Jesus is moving from one city to another one, one town or the one village to another one, and he goes past some grain fields. And the way they did those days was they had like a, a raised kind of a walkway and the grain fields down to both sides. And because Jesus is a rabbi or a teacher, the custom was that he would walk in lead of his disciples and the disciples would sort of come out behind him. And there's actually stories in the New Testament describe how they're discussing something back in the pile of the disciples and he's up the front walking by himself. Now here they are walking along and the Bible says that the, the disciples began to make their way along while picking heads of grain. So what they did was they were stepping off the trail, stepping into these great big grain fields, and they were pulling off heads of grain off these grain stalks. It was barley or oats or wheat or whatever it was. And they were rubbing it in their hands, and then they blow on it, and all the chaff disappears. And then they would eat the grain. I've never done this, but they tell me it's a delicious snack. Uh, do you have trail mix here in Australia? Yeah, you know, you go on the nuts and the chocolate and the raisins, right? Good stuff. You go on a hike, you take a handful of trail mix, you munch on it, and it gives you energy. And that's exactly what they were doing. They were, they were literally eating like a trail mix version of the, from their first century. But here's the question. The Pharisees are right there alongside with Jesus, and the way the verse reads in the original, it's like they kept saying to him, hey, your disciples, they're doing what's not lawful. They're saying it over and over and over again to Jesus. They keep badgering him. And the question comes to mind. Uh, if it's Sabbath and you're not supposed to travel, why are the Pharisees walking along beside Jesus bugging him about the disciples? Bit of a problem for them, isn't it? So here's the neat thing. Is there's a beautiful section, and it explains something about the Lord's life. Jesus finally stops, and he turns, and he says, verse 25, Have you never read what David did when he was in need, and he and his companions became hungry? And David does a great thing. 
He takes them and he turns them right back to their own Bible. And the way the verse, the question reads is, do you not understand the law? Well, that's a great question, isn't it? If you read right the Old Testament story of David and all he did, and what Jesus is highlighting is something really really neat too. David and Jesus live, if you like, parallel lives. So how's that? Here's David, right? Remember the story? He is, uh, Saul has become king, but Saul is kind of mad, basically. The Spirit of God had left him, and a spirit had come to torment him. And David was this little shepherd boy, and uh, the people have rejected God, and and Saul is just a nutcase king, and things are going haywire all over. And the Lord comes to Samuel the prophet and says, Arise, take your horn, fill it full of oil, go and see Jesse in the Bethlehemite, and you're going to anoint one of his sons to be king. So Jesse gets up and he fills his oil and he goes off there and he calls all the sons in and, and Jesse has his first son, Eliab, comes in and Eliab is big and tall. He's six foot six. He's like Mr. Olympia and he comes walking in and, the, and Samuel goes, oh, surely the Lord's anointed us before him. And Samuel, God says, no, reject him, forget him. He's not the one. And they all pass, before, pass by Jesse and, sorry, and Samuel and the Lord says, none of these. And then Samuel turns to Jesse and says, are these all your sons? Is there not one more? And Jesse goes, oh, right, forgot. Uh, there is one more. But he's, he's the youngest, and you know, he's tending the sheep, and you know, David. And they say, we're not going to eat until he comes. Send for him. The guy walks in, and the Lord says, this is the one. Anoint him king. So Samuel takes a horn and pours oil on David's head, and he is now the anointed king of Israel. The word anointed, by the way, is the word Mashiach. And the word Mashiach is the New Testament word for Christ. Did you know that? They both mean anointed. So here is David. He is the anointed king of Israel living in the reign of a madman king. And so the madman king tries everything he can do to destroy David. He chases him. And literally, at the first point of fleeing, David runs away from David's house. And he has a few of his men with him. And he runs to the tabernacle because they're all hungry. And they need something to eat. And that, that psalm we read this morning, this is where it comes into play. He goes to the tabernacle and he says, we need something to eat. And Ahimelech, who is the high priest at that moment, goes and says, we've got nothing here but the, the showbread. You know, and he says, well, you know, if the, women have kept, the men have kept themselves from women and everything is, is good, you know, we can let them eat the bread. It's totally unlawful. But what is neat about it is, is God is providing for their needs through the tabernacle. In a sense, he puts aside the law about Sabbath, the law about the showbread, because the need of sustaining the lives of these men is more important than that particular law. And what Jesus does when he says, listen, have you not read about David when he was in need and his companions were hungry and he entered the high priest, sorry, the house of God, time of Abiath the high priest, and he ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest, and he gave it to those who were with him. What David is doing is he's drawing their attention to listen. One just like David is standing right here. David was the anointed king. I am the anointed king. David's men were hungry. If you read Matthew 12 and Luke 6, you find also a parallel version of this story in the Gospels. The disciples, it says, they were hungry. They need to eat. And so what he's done is he's provided for them from the grain in the fields nearby. Jesus' understanding, his explanation of David eating the showbread shows us that he correctly understands the Old Testament laws. The Sabbath laws allowed for maintaining and sustaining life. God ceasing from creating and uh, did not stop him from sustaining and maintaining that creation. Keeping Sabbath in the law did not prohibit sustaining and maintaining life. David's men were hungry and they needed food. And God provided for David and his men through the tabernacle and the showbread. Jesus' disciples were hungry. They needed food. They provided it from the fields nearby. They were just eating to feed their need. They weren't eating. Sorry. They weren't working to produce something. They weren't working that was unnecessary. It was a necessary thing they needed to do. Jesus' work in spreading the gospel and ministering to his people did not stop him from sustaining his disciples' lives. So you can see now. Let's let's just unpack the Old Testament into into Jesus' situation. In Deuteronomy 5, Sabbath law commanded them to rest from productive work 
but not necessary work. The disciples were not working by taking the grain and eating it by those definitions. Matthew 12 describes them as hungry and eating. In Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, the Sabbath was a day holy to the Lord. The disciples were doing the Lord's work. They had set aside not just the day, but they had set aside their whole lives to serve and honor and work with the Lord. Their whole lives were committed to it. In Exodus 20, Sabbath was a sign of Israel's covenant relationship with God, commemorating His provision for them. Sabbath for you and I, is about commemorating the new covenant relationship we have with Christ. Darrell was exactly right. We come into this place, we sit down, and we focus our attention entirely upon the Lord Jesus and what he has done. We commemorate the fact that we're part of a new covenant relationship. In Deuteronomy 5, it says that the Sabbath was a reminder of the relief that God granted them in delivering them from slavery. Although they didn't get it yet, the disciples didn't understand it, they were very soon going to understand that Jesus had set them free from something far more insidious than slavery in Egypt. Jesus died on a cross to set us all free from sin and death. The disciples were not breaking the Sabbath at all. Once again, the Pharisees had misinterpreted and misapplied the word of God because they had added to it. They failed to realize God's grace in the gift of Sabbath. Jesus' words in verse number 27 are absolutely key. He says, uh, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. And Jesus doesn't use the word for Israel. He uses the word for man of all kinds. Right? So Sabbath was made for every human for, for a purpose. What is that purpose? To remind God of God's perfection, sorry, remind man of God's perfection in creation. It's to remind man of God's sovereignty over them. It's to remind man of God's deliverance from slavery to sin, to rest them and refresh them. The, the Pharisees had reinterpreted and twisted it all around to mean that man was made for the Sabbath. And by their additional laws, they missed, they totally missed the meaning of it. Jesus is the Son of Man. That's the last statement in the line there, verse 28. The Son of Man is Lord even of the statement, of the Sabbath, sorry. His statement is hugely significant, okay? He's claiming to be God again. He's saying, I am the Son of Man. I'm Lord even over the Sabbath. He's saying, I am God. Listen to what Daniel 7 says about the Son of Man. It says this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Jesus is the son of man that Daniel was speaking about. He is Lord. He is claiming and stating that he is God. Not only that, but when Jesus states that he is Lord even over the Sabbath, he is saying that he is the Lord God who gave Sabbath to man in the first place. Far beyond that, he's going to give eternal Sabbath rest to God's people. That idea, when he says there, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, it refers not just to the one they were participating in, it refers to the eternal rest yet to come. I said it before, I say it again, the best is yet to come. All of what we do now as the people of God in church, gathering together, enjoying each other's company, singing the worship songs, opening the scriptures together, it's all in anticipation of what's yet to come in eternal glory. Sabbath didn't simply have meaning for the Old Testament people of God. We who know and love the Lord Jesus, this Son of Man, are one day going to enter into his eternal rest. Which brings us to the most critical question that every sermon has to get to sooner or later. And the answer is this. Well, the question is this. So what? What does all of that mean for our lives? How does this help me, carpenter, pastor, whatever, student in 2016? How does it help you live your life knowing all that stuff? It's not going to help you to know who the Pharisees were. Not a whole lot. The Sabbath thing is a good thing to know. How does it help so we look back at the whole chapter and we see the flow of thought. We kind of looked at it at the beginning and we look at the end again. In 
2 verses 1 to 12, the message is Jesus is the Son of Man with authority to forgive sin. The message to us is come to Jesus and find forgiveness of sin. In verses 13 and 14, Jesus called Levi to leave everything behind to follow him. And the message to us, come and follow Jesus and leave everything behind. In verses 15 to 17, Jesus lay around the table eating and drinking with his followers, the disciples, the tax collectors, and the sinners. And the lesson, the message to us from this text is, come and fellowship with Jesus and his followers. In verses 18 and 19, Jesus' disciples are rejoicing in the bridegroom, that's Jesus, instead of fasting. And the lesson for us is this, come and rejoice. Be glad, Christian, because Jesus is our bridegroom and our Savior. In verses 23 to 28, Jesus' disciples didn't break the Sabbath at all. And the lesson, the message for us is this, come and rest in Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. What does it mean to rest in Jesus? It's an easy, it's a, it's a nice catchphrase. Just rest in Jesus. What does that mean? What does it mean for us today on our Sabbath day? By the way, a question gets asked all the time, why do we not do this on Saturday? That's the Sabbath. That's a great question. It's got a good, good understanding. The Jews worked all through the week in anticipation of their rest that was to come. We start on the first day of the week, resting in Christ, and we work as an outflow of that rest. The Jews were looking forward to the rest at the end. They had to work to get there. We celebrate Sunday. Why? Because on the first day of the week, Jesus rose from the dead. Everything that we have as believers, everything that we enjoy, is guaranteed and sealed to us because Jesus rose on the first day of the week. So we as Christians and believers get together on the first day of the week to remember the Lord, to worship God, to rest together as the people of God, and we go through our week in the strength of that rest that we began with. All right, That's what we do on Sunday, simple as that. So what does it mean to rest in Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath? What's it mean for us? It means this, and it's not a lot different to what the Jews should have done back in the land. We rest and we remember God's perfection and creation. Uh, If you're on Facebook, you might find that some person in this room uh, occasionally posts beautiful pictures and some reflections on creation, how they display God to her. When was the last time you walked outside and just spent some time in a open air place, maybe in the country somewhere where there's no city noise, and just enjoy the beauty of God's creation. Part of our Sabbath rest is enjoying the perfection of what God has done, both in the creation of all the heavens and the earth and the land around us, the the birds and the trees and the sky and the stars and all that stuff, just soaking up how good God is. We use Sabbath to rest and remember God's perfection and creation. We rest and remember that God is sovereign over all our days. He's ordered our days ahead of us. He's given us the Sabbath rest, that that finishing point or starting point, as a way to break up the cycle of life to show us refreshment and rest and work and rest and refreshment and work. It's all to help us understand that God is sovereign over every part of our lives. We rest and remember that by his suffering and death, we have been delivered, not just from Egypt and making bricks. We've been delivered from slavery to sin and death. We rest and remember because there is yet a future eternal fellowship, eternal rest with Jesus that's yet to come. We rest and we are refreshed in Christ. You say, how does that happen? We fellowship. We get together in places like this. We get together in people's homes. One of the things that we did as a kid, I don't do it as much as we did when I was younger, I guess, but is we used to entertain a lot. I think some of the older generation remember the days when you opened your home in the evenings and you filled it full of people and you put a load of food on the table and you just sat around and talked and laughed and, and, and just enjoyed each other's company. And part of that is being refreshed in Christ because as you've learned something of Christ throughout the week, you come together with the people of God and you share what you've learned and that refreshes them and encourages them and builds them up in their faith. When we sit out there and the guys and the girls sit here and they pray, often we share scriptures and we share thoughts about things that have happened through the week and stuff what's going on and we can refresh each other in Christ by sharing what each of us has learned of Christ through the week to build each other up the last story which we haven't even touched on yet in verses 1 to 6 is Jesus goes into the the synagogue and he heals a man with a withered hand 
And the last part of what we do as Sabbath is we minister to each other to set others free as well. It's sharing what we've learned of Christ. It's preaching the gospel. It's telling others about what Jesus means to us and who he is to us. So the message of all of this, you boil it all down, it's simply this come and rest in Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Lord of the Sabbath. The life of the Christian isn't supposed to be this hectic, insane pace running from one thing to another. It's supposed to be a life ordered and balanced, a life where we take time aside to rest in our Savior, to enjoy what he's done, to rejoice in the fact that we have a bridegroom who has paid the ultimate penalty to buy us as his bride. We have an amazing Savior, don't we? A God who who needs to be glorified and loved and worshipped and honored and exalted. I don't know what your life was like this week. I know some of you had some struggles. I think every one of us have had a struggle this week of some kind or another. But we have an incredible Savior who offers us rest. And these disciples, they're walking along and they're they're in about the business of God and they're busy. And even on the Sabbath, God provides for their needs and restores them and refreshes them and enables them to carry on. And part of the reason why we gather as a church like this is to refresh and restore and revive each other in Christ. To go back to face what we're facing at home and throughout the week with the strength that God infuses to us. What a great God we have. A great God that he didn't just set us free to work nonstop to the day. We just literally worked ourselves right into the grave and died. He provided and established a way that for us to rest and be refreshed in him. Let's give thanks. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks. And we praise you for our Savior. Father, we thank you for the Sabbath rest that, that you initiated. In glory. And Father, we give you thanks that you stopped, you finished the work of creation, but your work of sustaining it carried on. And Father, we thank you for the truth of Scripture. We thank you, O God, for the Old Testament laws that teach us about the grace of God, the love of God, the loving kindness of our God. Father, we thank you for the rest that we have in Christ. And Father, we give you thanks. It's not by endless rules and laws that we have a relationship, a fellowship with you. But Father, it is by your grace. Father, we give you thanks for the message that we have been called to leave everything behind, to come and follow you. Father, to find forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ. Father, help us to fellowship with one another, enjoying and building up each other in our faith. Father, we help us, we pray, to rejoice in the fact that Jesus is our bridegroom. And Father, help us to rest in the fact that he has finished the work. He's done it all. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that we have been set free from slavery to sin. Father, we thank you for what Jesus has accomplished for us. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.